Hello and welcome to another episode of My Favorite Trees. My name is Thomas and I love trees. I'm rounding out my fruit series with potentially the biggest fruit in the world, the apple. Not the physically biggest fruit, that title belongs to a pumpkin that weighs over 2,600 pounds. I'm saying the apple is the most popular fruit, the most well-known fruit, potentially the first fruit cultivated by humans, and maybe the Garden of Eden's forbidden fruit. And when they're baked into pies, they're the most American thing next to baseball. We know the apple, we love the apple, but where did apples come from? And how have they evolved to become the global staple that we know them as today? has actually changed relatively little over its long history of cultivation. And how long have humans been cultivating apples? This is a rough estimate, but right around 10,000 years. And the fact that a fruit has been cultivated for that long, only for its shape to remain consistent, is rare. A fruit's size and shape are generally evidence of how their seeds are dispersed. We often find edible fruits to be smaller in the wild because it's smaller animals responsible for spreading these seeds. Birds, for example, are very important examples of animals that disperse seeds, so the fruits need to be small enough for them to pick up. That's how we found the pomegranate, another one of humanity's earliest attempts at domesticating plants. I mentioned in my episode about that how there's a wild pomegranate growing on an island that is what we believe every pomegranate to have looked like before we cultivated it. Namely, it's much smaller, and we bred them to be much bigger but not the apple. Sure, they might have been a little bit smaller. I know there's some apples at the store that are massive, but not to the same extent as things like the pomegranate. But let's go back to where we first saw these fruits in the wild and started growing them based on favorable characteristics. All right, time machine, take us 10,000 years in the past. We're in the Tian Shan Mountains where Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan meet Western China. Around here, there's a plant growing wild called Malus cyversii, but that's certainly not what early humans would have called it. Linguistic historians actually think that our modern English word apple was derived from these early languages. We believe this early apple-like word simply meant fruit, or it could be defined in the same way that we use the word fruit, which leads to the theory that this was the original cultivated fruit. If we weren't growing other fruits at the time, then apple was the fruit. Whatever they called it, this wild tree would be considered medium size. They bloom these lovely pink apple blossom flowers that kind of look like cherry blossoms, but bigger. Which makes sense because they're both in the same subfamily within the overall rose family. Fun fact, the state flower of Michigan is the apple blossom. Michigan is actually the third largest apple producing state in the U.S., But Malus cyversii isn't the only apple species out there in the world that looks like our modern apple. There's an apple species native to Europe called Malus sylvestris that also looks not unlike our modern apple. How do we know this Central Asian apple is the guy that led to all of our cultivation? For this, we require modern science. As early as the 1930s, genetic scientists understood a positive correlation between a species' age and genetic diversity meaning that the older a species is, the more diversity we will observe in the genetics of different individuals. It simply has had more time to diversify. 
In the 1990s, we honed in on Central Asia as a hotspot of genetic diversity in apple populations. We also found a lot of similar genetic markers between these wild populations and some of our most well-known domesticated varieties, namely the Golden Delicious Apple, a personal favorite of mine. So then, is our modern grocery store apple that Malus cyversii? Well, no. That plant is the wild tree that we ultimately domesticated and bred to have favorable characteristics for food. Crossbreeding and hybridization over thousands of years has ultimately created a new species of apple, what we call Malus domestica. We're not entirely sure when this new species became a new species, we just understand that we started cultivating 10,000 years ago, and that it started moving west when human civilizations began trading with each other. It was along these trade routes that humans found the opportunity to hybridize it with other apple species that were being cultivated. We selectively bred individuals based on fruit size, sweetness, color, acidity, and more. We wanted the tastiest fruit. But we also bred based on tree size, because who wants to climb a tall tree every time they want an apple? And the way that we achieve the fruit characteristics that we want is based on grafting rather than seed planting. There's unpredictability with starting from seeds, but if you want more of the same apple, then you take a productive part of that apple tree and attach it to a healthy living stump that grows the tree type you're looking for. This gives you more of the exact same apple and ensures consistency of quality. Now, 10,000 years is a long time to play with apple varieties, and that's why we've made so many different kinds of apples. And apple cultivars hybridize so readily that if you take two varieties that have never crossbred, it only takes a few years to make an entirely new apple. And people just like doing that. In the modern day, there are 7,500 varieties of apples grown around the world. 2,500 of those are grown just in the United States, in every state including Alaska and Hawaii. Now, not all these different varieties end up being sold. Some of them are kept privately or are just grown in town. So, thinking about what actually makes it to market, there's only around 100 apple varieties that are grown commercially across 36 states. Which, I can kind of quietly accept, knowing that there's thousands more that you don't see in grocery stores, but 100 different kinds of apple is still a lot. We don't have that many options for oranges or lemons. Of all the apples that Americans consume, over half come from the state of Washington. But the US doesn't win out overall in global production. China beats us handily on the international scale. What's your favorite kind of apple? Do you have a favorite kind of apple? I'll admit that for most of my life, it's something I never thought of. And that idea came up in conversation between myself and some friends my senior year of college. I think we had opinions, but we realized that we were all just bluffing and unreasonably defending the idea of these different apples. So we proposed that we learn. Some of us had also just taken a semester-long wine tasting course, and we felt so smart and ready to put our palates to the test. So we bought somewhere between six and eight different kinds of apples. It's been a while, I don't remember. And we made scorecards based on things like overall enjoyment, sweetness, acidity, crunch, and mouthfeel. We blindfolded ourselves and had an unbiased third party cut up the apples, and we blind tasted them one at a time. It was a lot of fun, and we learned a lot about how we feel about apples. For one thing, I learned that my personal favorite, as I said, is Golden Delicious. And I can confidently say what my favorite apple is. In general, I think Honeycrisp had the highest overall score between all of us. And there were two at the very bottom. Those in the apple community know that Red Delicious is a deceptive name, unlike its golden brother. It is anything but delicious. 
These apples are notoriously mealy and soft. Ew! But what happened was that it only ended up as the second worst apple overall. There's another apple that we all blindly assumed was Red Delicious because of how disgusting it was. That was the Brayburn apple, which I don't think I knew about before the judging, but I will never forget it now. I don't know if we had gotten some diseased apples or what, but they were not fit for human consumption. I'm led to believe that they looked and felt fine on the outside, but boy were they unpleasant. You should all try a blind apple taste test. It's very fun and very worth it. And I find personally that my tastes don't line up with online rankings at all. For instance, I was on pickyourown.org looking at facts about apple crops and they have a ranking on the most heavily cultivated varieties. This isn't a deliciousness ranking, obviously, but production is supposed to reflect consumer tastes. And apparently, Red Delicious is still the most widely produced apple variety in the US, which is ridiculous. Here's the rest of the top 10 for those curious. So at the top, Red Delicious, then Gala Apples, or Gala, not sure which it is, Golden Delicious, which I can accept as third, Fuji, Granny Smith, Macintosh, Honeycrisp, criminally low, Rome, Empire, funny that those two are next to each other, and Crips Pink, otherwise known as Pink Lady, another good one that is too low on that list. Are you like me and already have strong opinions about apples? We have these opinions because apples have been such an integral part of human culture for thousands of years. Do you ever wonder if humans thousands of years ago had these same arguments about apple varieties? Oh, here comes Cassius with his new variety of apple. What does he call them? Malus Terrificus? More like Malus Terribilis. <laughs> but for real, let's talk about how the apple so repeatedly shows up in our stories, art, and religion. What has the apple done to make us who we are today? If we want to follow the apple's journey through human culture, we find ourselves starting at the beginning of humanity. In the Judeo-Christo-Islamic world, that means the Garden of Eden. This was the land of abundance where the first two humans, Adam and Eve, were made. They were told they could eat any fruit in the garden except for the fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Long story short, they ate that fruit and gained knowledge and for their disobedience were expelled from the garden and doomed to die. We have long debated over the specifics of this fruit, as the Hebrew texts simply call it fruit. But for whatever reason, we do like to be specific, so we wonder, was it an apple? Or a pomegranate? Or a fig? Or something else? Why is there so much confusion? I believe at first, humans were fine accepting it as generic unidentified fruit. It was considered to be a specific fruit when the Bible was translated to Latin. I've mentioned that the genus name for apple is malice, this comes from the original Latin word for apple, but the apple malice has a homonym with another word, malice, meaning evil or deceitful. This led to some confusion when the tree of good and evil's Latin translation included the word malice. This linguistic confusion is compounded by the fact that our earliest word for apple was just fruit, and that at some point mentioning fruit was a reference to apples. This wasn't what led a big cultural following of apples being the forbidden fruit though, that didn't happen until 1667 when John Milton wrote Paradise Lost, a story whose details have been very influential on how many view and visualize many aspects of Christianity, 
despite not being canon. One of those details included by Milton is that the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil is, specifically, an apple. This was likely inspired by that Latin translation confusion way back when, but his story gained so much popularity that the forbidden fruit being specifically an apple became widely accepted from then on. But the significance placed on apple didn't begin with Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Old dead religions have their own stories about the value of this fruit. Greek mythology features the apple on several occasions, but what typically shows up are these special holy golden apples. These immortality-granting apples were said to be given to Zeus and Hera on their wedding day by the titan of the earth, Gaia. And Hera loved them so much that she created a special grove of them called the Garden of Hesperides, guarded by sunset nymphs and a 100-headed dragon named Leiden, the dragon whose death was said to have grown the first Socotran dragon trees. But I'm cutting to the end. The first big story involving these apples, aside from Zeus and Hera's wedding, is about the labors of Hercules. You guys all know who Hercules is. He's the demigod son of Zeus, except Zeus was having an affair, so his wife Hera took out her anger on Hercules. She antagonized him in several ways, with the worst certainly being how she bestowed upon him a temporary insanity that caused him to kill his wife and children. That wasn't in the Disney movie. But despite the fact that his actions were not his own, Hercules still felt that he needed to receive justice, and sought penance at the feet of his kingly cousin. Thus were 12 impossible tasks assigned to him, the golden apples being a part of number 11. Hercules was told to steal one of the golden apples from the Garden of Hesperides that was guarded by a 100-headed dragon. He had enough trouble fighting a hydra, so he went seeking help and figured out that the titan Atlas may have a solution. Atlas is the guy in charge of holding up the sky to prevent it from falling to earth and killing everyone, often depicted as the strong man holding the very big globe on his back. Atlas told Hercules that he could go get the golden apples for him. He was allowed in the garden because he was the father of those sunset nymphs, the Hesperides. Hercules just had to hold up the sky for a little while while he was gone. So Hercules agrees to take on the immense burden, and sure enough, Atlas went and grabbed those apples for him. But when he came back, he told Hercules, What if I just went and delivered them to your king for you? It's been so long since I've had a break, and... I'm really just wanting a little more time before I take the weight on again. This was obviously a trick to get out of his duties, but luckily, Hercules saw through it. And he said, Yeah, no, I don't blame you at all. This entire sky is very heavy. You know what? I want you to have a little more free time. I really do. But while I'm waiting for you, I want to try and make it just a little more comfortable. Maybe get a soft pad on my back? Here, can you hold it for just a second while I go and get one? And apparently Atlas was weaker in the Battle of Wits, because he set the apples down and took the sky back. And Hercules picked up the apples and said, Goodbye! Another Greek story about the golden apples comes much later, but also involves a wedding, just like in the beginning. The Greek goddess of discord and strife was a woman named Eris. There was apparently a big wedding that she somehow didn't get invited to. Almost like newlyweds somehow don't want to invite strife into their marriage. This wedding wasn't even that big. It was between two people named Thetis and Peleus. Do you know their Greek mythology stories? Probably not. But all the other hot goddesses were there, so Eris was big time jealous. She walked right into the Garden of Hesperides and stole a golden apple because who's going to stop her? And she brought this apple to the wedding, wrote, To the fairest, in its skin, and threw it at the feet of Athena, Aphrodite, and Hera. 
and they immediately fought over it because each thought themselves to be the most beautiful and deserving. So they turned to Zeus and asked him to judge, who promptly freaked out and did not want anything to do with this, especially because his wife was involved, and instead roped in a mortal prince named Paris to judge. I'm pretty sure Paris didn't want to be there either, but Aphrodite, goddess of love, knew what Paris wanted and made him a deal. Pick her as the winner and she'll make Helen of Troy, his crush, fall in love with him. And that absolutely sold him and he chose her. This decision ultimately led to the Trojan War. And don't be mistaken, it wasn't started by Greeks and Trojans, it was started by gods mad at other gods because of a beauty contest. But because of this, the apple has been seen as a symbol of beauty and love for Aphrodite, and also a symbol of chaos because of Eris. But don't love and conflict just naturally go hand in hand? This is not the only place we see immortality granting golden apples. The Norse had their own stories about such things. It was said that there was a goddess of youth named Idun who tended a grove of apple trees whose golden fruit is what made the Norse gods immortal. Despite being a goddess herself, this was the only reason the gods really cared about her. But to them, this was a good reason to care about her. And admittedly, some scholars have pointed out that apples did not arrive in Scandinavia prior to Christianity showing up, so these youth roots were probably berries. But I'm not going to let that ruin my fun because it's still significant that apples were the fruit that are now modernly attributed to this story, even as a later addition. The apple is also seen in Celtic mythology. It's actually an Oum tree, just not one of the named moons. On the Oum alphabet, it is the letter Q, or Quart, and on the calendar, the apple is said to represent the light half of the year, which confuses me, because I thought the Oak King was in charge of the light half of the year. I don't know what to think about that. The symbolism is slightly different here. Magic using the apple tree is sometimes attributed to fertility and life themes, but the tree is more often represented as a door to a faraway land known as the Otherworld. This Otherworld, though, is a realm where deities are supposed to live, and thus apple is connected to these immortal beings in the same way we see in Norse and Greek mythologies. So many of these stories revolve around Europe, and frankly, that's just the Western world for you but the stories of the apple continue elsewhere. There is a famous collection of stories from the Islamic world known as Arabian Nights. It's from this collection that we get popular modern stories like Aladdin and Sinbad the Sailor, and also a story about three apples. In this story, there is a whodunit murder mystery, and a vizier named Jafar, who was featured in Disney's Aladdin, but not the original Aladdin story, must find the killer of this woman who had been killed. As the story of how she was killed is unraveled, we see that the plot revolves around these three apples. Jafar is threatened with death if he doesn't figure things out, and every time he finds an apple, he learns more about the case and ultimately avoids being killed himself. In a more indirect way, we see the apples yet again having life-giving properties. A common Western saying is that an apple a day keeps the doctor away, and the idea that apples keep us healthy come from so many stories that suggest life-giving properties. And we see these stories continue when European colonists bring the apple to America. While various parts of Eurasia had their own native apples to play with and hybridize and make religious stories out of, North America only had tiny crab apples that were just food for birds. So we don't see the same value placed by native tribes. That being said, the symbolism that we see in modern America was just things that were carried over from Europe. We see the apple here as being important during fall and the harvest time. 
This comes from the apple's life-renewing symbolism, the idea that winter's harshness will come and pass. We also often see life themes in general connected to fertility. This is something that was attributed to the Norse god Idun, and something we see in ancient Greece with the apple's connection to the goddess of beauty and love. Over time, this evolved into us seeing the apple as a romantic symbol. There's a reason why apple picking is such a popular fall date idea. But there's also an old British superstition that lends to this. It was said that if you can peel an apple whole in one piece and throw the skin behind your shoulder, it would fall in such a way that it reveals the initials of whoever you are meant to marry. Bobbing for apples is another tradition from New England stemming from romance. For those unfamiliar with this practice, you toss some apples in a big tub of water and you have to try and remove the apples using just your mouth. But back in the day, girls would carve their initials in small letters into the apples and the boys would bob for them. Whoever's initials they pulled out was their fated lover. But what was it that made the apple so uniquely American? Perhaps the legend of Johnny Appleseed? There was said to be a man from Massachusetts named John Chapman who believed in a world where no one would ever go hungry. He noticed that Americans were driven to continue moving westward, and he worried about their ability to find food out in the frontier lands. So he got out ahead of them and took with him countless apple seeds, and he planted those seeds all over the Midwest in anticipation for those settlers, so there would already be fruit trees waiting for them when they arrived. And it's quite possible that the story of Johnny Appleseed was very influential in establishing this fruit as a national symbol. After all, westward expansion was an idea that filled every American with national spirit, and the apple was part of that. But what it ultimately comes down to is the fact that the apple was already important in a multitude of European cultures, and when those European immigrants brought those ideas to America, it became American culture. And certain things just grew over time. There's various news reports over the centuries promoting apple pie as a staple in the American diet based off of how our cuisine had developed. And then of course World War II happened, and in order to get us to rally against an enemy, we really leaned into American symbols. That's how things that were kind of American became exceptionally American. Because in order to fight a war, you need a lot of national pride for your people to fight it. And it was so effective that we don't even realize why American symbols are American symbols. American fanaticism is just proof that it is really easy for us to overlook our past. In the same way, it is really easy to overlook the apple. These are just things we take for granted. The countless apples at the grocery store, apple pies in all shapes and sizes that any restaurant will serve you, including fast food places, and a nice mug of warm apple cider in the fall. The apple has been a part of who we are for so long. I've given programs about geology before, and the span of time covering how mountains form is already hard to grasp, but even something like the origin of apples in human history is something that can be hard to conceive. That somehow, once upon a time, these were just trees in a forest. November 2nd is the day when my next episode comes out. That month is as far as I have new episodes scheduled. After that, there's going to be a little break until I can make new ones. I don't know when that's going to happen, but check in with my social media for updates when I'm living in a place with cell service again. Until then, though, my next episode is going to be about the Cedar of Lebanon, including the single oldest story of mythology that humans have physically found. I 
want to thank all of you for listening to this podcast. If you have the time, leave a review on Apple Podcasts to help us grow. The music is by Academy Garden. You can find more of their stuff on Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, Bandcamp. Wherever good music exists, they are there. My cover art is by Brittany Burnett. Find her incredible photography on Instagram at BoomerangBrit. Find me on Twitter and Facebook at My Favorite Trees and get updates on future episodes and extra goodies. If you'd like to thank me back, you can do so by donating to your favorite sustainable organization, some of which are listed on my website, mftpodcast.com. Now, go find a tree that you love and give it a hug.